Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Greenlight Guru, the biggest thing we care about is the biggest thing you care about, improving the quality of life with medical devices built with less risk. We know we're not physically there helping you to build devices, but our software is. So why wouldn't we build our software to be aligned with industry standards like ISO 1345 or 14971? We're the only medical device QMS solution provider to be named by G2 as a category leader for 13 quarters in a row. Because it's an odd number, I can't do the math and tell you how many years, but what does that mean? It means medical device companies who are out there making a difference believe we're making a difference and they're telling people about it. If you're looking to make a difference by getting quality, life-saving devices to market on an average three times faster, contact Greenlight Guru today to start the conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is the founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and joining me today is President of Vascular Sciences, Mike Drews. Mike, welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. Absolutely. And I got the headphones on today. There's a little bit of home renovation happening in my uh, world. So hopefully uh, the background noise is, uh, well, hopefully nobody hears anything. But if so, you hear a little bit of banging. All those good. We're just putting some new tile in the bathroom, you know, so. The challenges of working from home. Yeah, well, you know, we've all been dealing with that now. I'm going to guess most of us have been dealing with that for a couple of years now. I guess it should be routine by now, but there's no such thing as routine when you work out of the house, right? Well, as you know, John, one of the important regulatory concepts is risk versus benefit. So <laughs> in terms of working from home, I personally, I've been working from home now for more than 20 years yeah. before COVID. Um, I think the benefits of working from from home far outweigh the risks, but that's just me. Uh, I tend to agree. I mean, before uh, the green light journey started, I, like you, worked out of my house most of the time. I mean, of course, there's always the need to to go to client sites and things like that. But generally speaking, I mean, yeah, working in my own environment, my own desk, my own chair, my own coffee, my own mug. Anyway, uh, I digress. Um, And my green light mug. (laughs) There you go. That's a nice one. So uh, folks that that are uh, repeat listeners of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I'm sure they've gotten used to you and I talking about, you know, important topics with respect to regulatory. But you brought up one that, I mean, it's fairly obvious to me, although even with that, I I suspect that I'm going to learn a fair amount today from our conversation. But I think it's an important topic. And generally speaking, the topic is 510K exempt. And I'll lay a little bit of a background. I'm sure we'll get into it for sure. But um, for those of you hopefully listening, you have some familiarity with uh, regulatory pathways. Uh, If you've uh, ever pursued getting a device to market in the United States, you're probably have some at least cursory familiarity with the 510k submission. I mean, as you, if you've listened to Mike and I talk in the past, we've described the 510k as sort of the workhorse of getting a medical device to market in the U.S. But there's this term uh, 510k exempt that I thought we could dive into a little bit more in depth today. So maybe as, as we usually do, the first place to start is what does 510K exempt mean? Yeah, great question, John. And once again, thanks very much for the opportunity to have this important discussion with you and your audience, because this is one of many questions that I get from my customers all the time. What exactly does 510K exempt mean? What is the phrase? First of all, I think the word exempt in this context is a, is not a good word to use, to put it uh, politely, because it kind of implies to some people anyway that it, it's a medical device that's exempt from all FDA regulation. In other words, it's not a regulated medical device. And just to kind of turn things on you a tiny bit, John, what do we call a device that's not a regulated medical device? Any ideas? I don't think we call it a medical device. Well, actually, we do. Okay. We call it a we maybe it's a bit of a trick question, John, and I didn't mean to, to put you on the spot here. It's what we call a a wellness device. Wellness, but yeah, it's yeah, okay. Device, 
Yeah, it's a device that fits under the wellness <clears throat> exemption. And by the way, for the benefit of our audience, I did a webinar for Greenlight uh, a few years ago, back in March of 2018, specifically on wellness devices and wearables. So if anybody's interested, we can put a link to that webinar from this podcast. Yeah. But exempt, in my opinion, is not a good word here because, as I said, it implies to some that it's exempt from all medical device regulation. In other words, it's not regulated by the FDA in in any way, shape, or form. In other words, it would be a wellness device, and that is absolutely not what uh, exempt means in this context. Ex an exempt device, whether it's a class one exempt or a class two exempt device, it doesn't matter. An exempt device is still a regulated medical device. In other words, it meets the Code of Federal Regulations or the CFR definition of a medical device. And once again, John, as a reminder to our audience, I did a webinar for Greenlight uh, uh, back in November of 2020 on what is a medical device and specifically when do you need FDA's permission to market a device and when do you not? The essence of a, the definition of a medical device, if I take the CFR definition, which is many, many, many paragraphs long, but if I, I boil that down, the essence of a medical device, the Mike Drew's definition, if you will, is something, anything other than a drug that's intended to prevent, diagnose, or treat a disease, injury, or condition. So let me just repeat that. That's the essence of a medical device, something, anything. It doesn't care if it's a piece of software, if it's a, if it's a solid uh, object, if it's a, uh, if it's a liquid, could be anything. It doesn't matter. Something, anything other than a drug that's intended to prevent, diagnose, or treat a disease, injury, or condition. An exempt device, whether it's class one exempt or class two exempt, it doesn't matter. It's still a regulated medical device. In other words, it's regulated by the FDA, but in the case of, for example, a, a class one exempt device, it's regulated at a very, very low level. So the most important thing I think for our audience to remember from the first part of our conversation, uh, John, is uh, exempt is still a regulated medical device, but it's it's regulated at a low level. It's, and one last thing, and then John, feel free to, to chime in. Exempt in this context means that the device is not subject to formal review by the FDA. In other words, no, no 510K, no de novo, no PMA, no HDE, none of that kind of stuff. You still have to have a quality management system. You still have to have design controls. You still have to have uh, FDA registration and so on and so on. But um, it's still regulated by uh, FDA as a medical device. I don't know if I did a very good job of explaining that, John. Uh, maybe you can kind of clean it up a little bit. Or what, what questions do you think our audience would have? I think you are spot on. Well, and I'll, and I'll put you know a slight twist on. It. I think a lot of times medical device companies, when they're developing a new device, they're you know one of the the activities that that uh, is pretty typical is trying to figure out the pathways. And uh, you and I spoke. I think the last time we spoke actually on on the Global Medical Device Podcast, we talked about um, the importance of regulatory strategy. Uh, and so, folks, I encourage you to listen to that. So don't don't confuse regulatory pathway with your strategy, but a, a component of that strategy is figuring out the different pathways. And once you start to hone in on that, you know, from time to time, you do come across, oh, my product for this uh, uh, indication for use, you know, for these regulations and, and these particular product codes that seem to be most applicable to my product, you might come across a scenario where you know that particular code for this kind of product is 510k exempt and i think sometimes when people hear that they're like cha-ching yes that means i have to do less work no no and i, th I think you know he mike's words well not with caution but listen to what he's saying because it just means that that there's a slightly different uh, pathway to get to market and it just means in this case that you're not preparing a formal submission uh, for FDA to review doesn't mean that you should take shortcuts or that you know or, or cut corners. Um, you still need to do what's important because uh, it is a medical device. Uh, so you need if, to still, if I can, yeah. if I could just amplify just slightly yeah. what you just said, John, because I think it's a very important point. Um, I'm going to go a little bit. But further, you said that uh, some people, when they find out their device is exempt, 510K exempt, for example, um, you know, ka-ching, ka-ching, you know, it's, it, it, it means it's easier, less work from them. Well, anybody that thinks that way, quite frankly, and this might sound harsh to some people, they should not be in the 
Yeah, get out of the industry. <laughs> get out of the industry. Because unfortunately, that's what leads to, to a litany of problems. Um, but anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt. So please. No, I mean, that's, I, I think that's uh, uh, crystal clear to me, and I, I hope folks hear that too. I mean, as med device professionals, we still have the, the responsibility um, to make sure that the products that we're designing, developing, manufacturing, selling, managing, maintaining, et cetera, et cetera, are as safe and effective as they can possibly be. And and just because you get an exemption doesn't mean you get a, uh, you know, to pass go with, with uh, you know, going through all the steps. You, you still have that responsibility, not only to, well, most importantly, to the patient, to make sure that you're doing things on the up and up and, and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I agree. If if you're not willing to do that, then this might not be the right industry for you. So, um, <clears throat> all right. So let's let's talk a little bit about exemptions. Can can are not necessarily class, uh, not necessarily classification specific, right? I mean, there there could be a, a device could be classified as a class one or a class two, uh, and and could be exempt, um, but also at the same time. Uh, I, I, I think anyway, right? I mean, it, just because you're, I'm, I'm fumbling with the question. Let's try it a different way. Just because my device is a certain classification does not necessarily um, mean it is exempt or not exempt, right? Yeah, that's that's correct, John. Uh, whether your device is exempt or not is largely independent of classification. Let me try to phrase the question maybe a slightly different way. So some people will ask me, are all class one medical devices exempt? And similarly, are all class right. two medical devices non-exempt? Well, the short answer to that question, John, is absolutely not. By far, the vast majority of class one devices are, in fact, exempt devices. But notice I'm saying the vast majority, not all. There are some, admittedly not many, but there are some class one devices that are non-exempt. So if you have a class one exempt device, that means that no 510K or de novo is required. On the other hand, if you have a class one non-exempt device, that means that a 510K or de novo would be required. Right. Okay. So that's all on the class one side of the universe. Now let's jump over to the class two side of the universe. The vast majority of class two devices are non-exempt, meaning that a 510K or a de novo would be required. However, there are some class two devices that are exempt, and we can talk about some examples in a moment, but there are some class two devices that are exempt, meaning that even though it's class two, no 510K or de novo is required. Uh, as a matter of fact, John, if you go to FDA's website where they talk about class one and class two uh, exempt devices, um, and we can provide a link to the website on the um, uh, with the podcast, there actually is a typo on FDA's website. It's There is a, a factually incorrect statement on FDA's website. Uh, in the first sentence of the website, it says, and I quote, most class one and class two devices are exempt mm. from pre-market notification 510K requirements, end quote. That is a, if you want to say it politely, typo. <laughs> if you want to say it, as I say it, as a expert witness in medical device product liability cases, a factually incorrect statement. It is absolutely not true. Right. Most class one devices are exempt. Yes, that's true. Most class two devices are non-exempt. And I just right. find it interesting. I'm not trying to you know, overly beat up on FDA because after all, everybody makes mistakes. But on the other hand, you know, there is some irony, John, you know, FDA holds companies very, very closely to what they say in terms of their their labeling and their claims and so on. Shouldn't FDA help be held to the same uh, level of scrutiny, if you will, on their own website? I'll leave that as a rhetorical question. Well, and, and I'll ask an equally rhetorical question. Fixing that typo does not seem like that requires uh, a, a significant amount of policy to to make sure that the information is fact factually accurate. But obviously, it's one, still there. So, yes, one would like to think so, John. But unfortunately, we're talking about our U.S. government here, so well, nothing is easy. Yeah, I'm sure but there's more importantly, yeah. more importantly for for our audience, John. <clears throat> what's the lesson to be learned here? The lesson to be learned is don't believe everything that you read or that you hear, including what you read on FDA's website. You know, I, I'm a big fan of the old Ronald Reagan mantra, trust but verify, right? So um, I see a lot of people say, well, it says this on FDA's website, therefore it must be true. Well, 
I don't know about you, John, but God forbid, if you needed surgery, would you want it be done by somebody who's following some procedure they see on a website somewhere? Probably not. <laughs> so trust but verify. It's a basic regulatory mantra. Yeah. All right. So uh, kind of recap that part. So most class one devices are exempt. Most class two devices are non-exempt. All right. And there are exceptions, of course. So don't accept either of these. Classification is not necessarily the absolute determining factor of of what thou shall or what, what you need to do from a regulatory submission standpoint. So dig in a little bit deeper to try to understand that. Now, I guess, you know, keeping that in mind, knowing that there are some class two devices that that are exempt, some, not most, some are exempt, and most class one are exempt. Let's just talk about the exempt um, uh, devices, class one and class two. How are the how are class one and class two exempt devices the same? How are they different? You know, what is how can you compare and contrast these? Yeah, great question, John. So, in other words. What's the difference between a class yeah. one exempt or a class two exempt device? So obviously classification has a lot to do with it. But to but as I said a few minutes ago, exemption is really independent. It's related to, but it's also independent of classification. And by the way, John, for those in our audience that are interested, I did a webinar for Greenlight uh, back in July of 2020, specifically on the medical device classification system. We can provide a link to that webinar as part of the podcast if anybody's interested. Yeah. But class one devices, both exempt as well as non-exempt, are subject to what we call general controls. General controls are the most basic kind of controls. They apply to all medical devices across the board. Every single, or maybe I shouldn't say every single, but the vast majority of regulated medical devices, that is the vast majority of devices that fit the CFR definition of a medical device that I said earlier, they are subject to general controls. On the other hand, class two devices, now we're going sort of one level up uh, in my medical device pyramid, as I like to call it. They are still subject to general controls because all devices, regulated devices are subject to general controls. But in addition to the general controls, they are subject to the applicable, what we call special controls. Mm -hmm. And special controls only apply to certain kinds of medical devices, depending on their technology, their mechanism of action, their indications, and so on. So simply put, John, the biggest difference between class one exempt, class two exempt devices, which is in fact the same difference as the difference between class one and class two devices that are that are uh, uh, that are non-exempt, is that class one devices are subject to general controls, class two devices are subject to general plus specific controls. Uh, does, does, uh, sorry, not specific controls, special controls. Does that make sense, John? I think so, but that's. I think I want to unpack that one a little bit more. So I, I guess to kind of play back what I've heard you share is that every medical device, or this is sort of building, right, or additive, but every medical device, uh, general controls apply to, to every device, regardless of classification. But as you sort of move up, the pyramid or down the pyramid, so to speak. Um, there's additional things that that are become applicable, and so, like in the case of a non-exempt device, or even in the case of an exempt device, uh, a class two is going to have something above and beyond just those additional uh, general controls that that only apply to the class one. So maybe that would be a, a great place to start to shift towards is what are the differences between general controls and special controls? Maybe yeah. giving some additional explanation there will help us all better understand some context. Absolutely, John, happy to explain that. And I'm happy to provide some examples as well. Um, and by the way, I know I've already went, mentioned a few of my webinars. Here's one more webinar that I'll mention. I did a, a webinar for Greenlight just a few months ago, specifically on special controls. So we can provide a, uh, a link to that for those that are interested. General controls, as I said before, these are the, the, the most general, the most basic kinds of regulatory requirements that apply to all 
regulated medical devices. So examples of general controls would include things like adverse event reporting, device tracking, universal device identification or UDIs, removal and corrective actions, uh, dealing with adulterated and misbranded uh, devices. Uh, device registration. Those things apply to medical devices across the board. I don't care what it does, how it works, uh, and so on. So those are the most basic things. One step above that are the special controls. Special controls are mm, special, if you will. Uh, and it, they typically involve some kind of performance standards, uh, maybe electrical safety, maybe biocompatibility, maybe usability. It might include things like post-market surveillance requirements. It might include the use of patient registries. They might include special labeling requirements. They might include pre-market um, uh, data requirements. Um, in fact, John, FDA has 126 special controls listed on their FDA website. So special controls are, are um one step above the general controls. But I'm just curious, John, have you ever thought about about this phrase special controls why do we call them special i think this 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 word special in this context is an absolutely terrible term because there's nothing special about these it's not like everybody shows up gets a trophy right there's nothing special <laughs> about them so instead of calling these special controls we should call them specific yeah. controls and I think I made a Freudian slip earlier when I when I mentioned that it drives me nuts how we still continue to perpetuate this 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 you know this this i can't think of a of a polite word to describe it but there's nothing special about these they become more specific so if you have a simple class one medical device and i get and i'll give you some examples in a moment but a device for example that's not going to come in contact with patients then biocompatibility is not applicable if you have a class one device that does not involve, you know, any electricity or, or, you know, doesn't get plugged into the wall, then electrical safety is not, you know, relevant to that. Those kinds of requirements would not make sense to impose as general controls, because as we've talked about before, general controls apply across the board. But as the class of the device increases, the technology of the device typically becomes more complicated. The indications become more complicated. The pathophysiology oftentimes becomes more complicated. So it makes sense for the regulation as you increase in class, not to become more special, but rather to become more specific. And one last thing that I'll mention, John, in the context of special controls, which I'll just mention very, very briefly here, special controls are a very significant advantage for anybody that is considering going the de novo route. A very significant advantage because long story short, you can work with FDA to create some new special controls or what I would call specific controls that can act as a barrier to entry to your competition. It's an example, John, of something we've talked about before many times, what I call competitive regulatory strategy. And for anybody that's interested in that topic, I would invite you to, to either watch the webinar on special controls, watch my webinar on de novo, or I think I even did a webinar on competitive regulatory strategy. So special controls are a significant advantage for uh, people doing a de novo. Does that make sense, John? There was a lot yeah. in there, but maybe we need to yeah. dig into uh, some more. So a couple of questions. I think you said there's what 126 special controls. Last I time I looked on FDA's website, that is correct. Most of those, John, are guidance documents. One example of a special control can be a guidance document, but there are other kinds of special controls. They might be industry standards. They might be um, best practices. They might sure. be lots and lots of different kinds of things. Okay, um, and. That last little uh, bit was intriguing to me. So, you know, I, I, you and I have talked a fair amount over the years about de novo and, and you know, I know you've, you've done, we've done podcasts and you know, I, I believe you've done at least one, probably multiple webinars on that particular topic. And, and um, de novo, I mean, I think a lot of folks used to, to think, oh, de novo is, you know, sort of. Um, a kiss of death, so to speak, from a, 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 a realistic re regulatory uh, pathway. Um, but there is, and we're not going to get into all this today, but there are some strategic advantages to pursuing that. 
Um, but that last little bit that you shared is I want to unpack that a little bit. So what I heard is uh, if I pursue a de novo, I might have an opportunity to define special controls. Now, I, I not every de novo defines a special control. I'm, I'm guessing, right? Because, um, but but tell me more about that. That's a little bit intriguing. You know, how does one go about creating a special their own special control if they are pursuing de novo? Yeah, great question, John. Uh, and just very briefly, um, I would I would modify slightly what you said. You said you have a, a manufacturer might have the opportunity to create special controls uh, in a de novo. Scratch the word might, might John. Uh, the manufacturer definitely has an opportunity to uh, work with FDA to impose a new special control or multiple special controls as part of the de novo. In essence, John, what we're talking about here is a de, a successful de novo re, um, results in a new um, uh, device, obviously, but a new regulation, a new product code being created, and in many cases, new special controls being uh, created. Now, a company company cannot obviously unilaterally impose special controls on other manufacturers. But what the company can do, and in my opinion, it would be a huge mistake in the de novo not to do this, is to um, greatly influence FDA on what the special controls should be, not just for their particular device, but for all similar devices coming to the market in the future. And if you design these special controls properly, John, and as an R&D engineer, when I started out in this business 30 years ago, this is one of the many things that I did. I would design testing methodologies, special right. controls, if you will, that were favorable to my product that at the same time would make it more difficult for my competitors to, to match. Right. And if we can get the FDA to impose that as a special control, now you have just created a speed bump in the road, if you will right in front of your competition. So yeah. I'm glad you picked up on that, John, because it's one of many uh, great examples of what I call competitive regulatory strategy, not just you know jumping through the regulatory hoops, if you will, but using regulation as a tactical weapon against your competition. Right, absolutely. All right, so I think you know to help continue to provide a little bit of clarity on this, um, you know, I'm a person, I'm a, sort of a, a visual uh, learner, I think. Uh, I think or the, there's visual elements that help me learn and grasp a topic a little bit better. And I, I suspect a lot of listeners might be in that same boat. So what are some examples of some class one exempt devices? And more than just the examples, maybe provide a little bit context from your point of view uh, as to why they are exempt. Yeah, great question, John. Um, and I really want to focus on the latter part of the question, not just, you know, the a certain device is class one exempt or class two exempt, but most importantly, why? Because one of my frustrations with a lot of folks in this business is they just follow the regulation like a recipe, like a computer executing lines of code one by one without asking, does this make sense? So the why here is just as important, if not more important than the what. So let's start out with a very simple medical device, John. Uh, you said you're a visual learner. I'm not going to put a picture of it up on the screen, but I think you know what this looks like. What class is a scalpel? You know what a what a, a scalpel is, obviously, John. It's a, it's a simple device cutting yep. through tissue. So yep. if I were to ask you what class is the scalpel, how would you respond? Um, I would I would respond that it's a class one device. Good guess. Uh, is that a guess, by the way? Or um, uh, yeah, I was trying to like jog my memory. Um, yeah, it's a guess. It's a guess. I I well, haven't committed to memory classifications of products. I would have <laughs> had I been asked that question in a, in a normal context, I would have been like, well, my suspicion is class one, but let me verify by reviewing the product codes and regulations to determine specifically. But that, yeah, that's a guess. Well, first of all, I don't want to ask you or anybody to memorize, you know, classifications <laughs> or product codes. That's Hell a complete no. and utter waste of time. Yep. But your answer is partly correct, John, but it's also partly incorrect. Okay. The better answer, and in fact, the best answer to every question in regulatory affairs. It depends. Is, it depends. <laughs> it depends. So what does it depend on? It depends on what you say, your labeling. Yeah. So if your intended use of the scalpel is a, a general indication like cutting tissue, 
then in fact, you are correct. It is a class one device. And in fact, it's a class one exempt device. But if we change the labeling, the scalpel itself is exactly the same. But if we change the labeling and specifically indicate it for uh, corneal incisions used in ophthalmology in the eye, now that same scalpel becomes class three PMA. Yeah, okay. So let me say that one more time. The classification for a scalpel with a general indication, and this is one of the examples that FDA shares on their website, or at least they used to, um, the classification for a scalpel with a general indication of, of cutting tissue, that's class one exempt. The classification of exactly the same scalpel, molecule for molecule, the design is the same, the materials are the same, and so on. If the indication is for corneal incisions in the eye, it becomes class three PMA. I don't think it takes an MD or a PhD or an RAC after somebody's name, John, to appreciate that. Gee, there's a pretty big difference between a class one exempt device and a class three PMA device, a class one exempt, no 510K, no de novo, no nothing. Whereas a class three, you know, you're talking about a PMA or maybe even an HDE simply because what you say. So there's one example, John. Let's take another example. Okay. How about a wheelchair? What is the classification they, of a wheelchair? I, I should I should have uh, <laughs> I, I should I I forgot I'm out of practice, Mike. That the answer to the initial answer to every regulatory question is it depends, and you know wheelchair. I think you know definitely it depends um, because there's so many different options from a wheelchair perspective. So I'm going to say it depends. So you are correct, John, the right answer, but let's see if you got the right reason for uh, the first example, the scalpel, we said it depends, but there it depended on the labeling, the wheelchair. And, you know, I, I teach part-time, John, so I use yeah. these examples on purpose. Yeah. The wheelchair, it depends, but not on the labeling. It depends on something else. Can you imagine what the other thing might be? Well, I think the labeling is partially important because, I mean, you know, you've got wheelchairs that can be used, you know, for general convalescence or something of that nature. Um, but there are other wheelchairs that that are fully powered devices, electric devices, electric, electromechanical devices. Uh, you know, some patients, you know, that need those with you have joysticks to, and they need those for their mobility so I, I think, you know, in some respects, the, part of the thing that's influencing that is, is it purely mechanical, you know, uh, motor or hand driven or human powered, so to speak, or is it something that has uh, electronics that are uh, driving the wheelchair? Kudos to you, John, because eventually you did come to the correct answer. It took you a few seconds to get there, but that doesn't matter. Eventually, you did come to the to the correct answer. Yes, it does depend on the labeling. But in this particular case, what is more important is the technology. So yeah. bottom line, a manual wheelchair is a class one exempt device, John. A manual wheelchair is a class one exempt device. However, a powered wheelchair is a class two non-exempt device. So manual wheelchair is a uh, 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 class one exempt, power wheelchair, class two non-exempt. The question to you and to the audience, John, is why? Why is a manual wheelchair class one exempt, whereas a powered wheelchair is class two non-exempt? And I'll give you a big hint, John. Special controls. We've already talked about. Yeah, exactly special right. controls. Exactly right. Exactly right. Because the general controls, remember, these are the most basic controls. These apply to all medical devices across the board. They would not be special enough or specific enough to ensure the safety and efficacy of a powered wheelchair. Therefore, the regulatory logic is very, very simple. We, we need to have it class two because class two would give us the option to the opportunity to superimpose those special controls on a powered wheelchair that would not have the um, option if it was a class one device. The last example for a class one exempt device that I thought I would share with, with you and your audience, John, is a dental cure light. If you go to the dentist and he or she shines a mouth, uh, sorry, a light in your mouth, what is the class of a dental light? Do you want to take a guess? A dental light. Um, well, I actually have a little bit of experience with with uh, um, these sorts of lights. Good. Um, so now I just set myself up to, to hopefully get the, <laughs> the answer right. Um, well, 
it's it's similar to to the uh, scalpel example. Um, the, these dental lights. I think the dental light is is um, is class one exempt. If I'm remembering, this has been a few years, and uh, and so I'm using old age as as an excuse here if I happen to be wrong. But I know the same light used for other indications, like for for um, uh, ophthalmic purposes, changes. Um, but I think for dental, I think it is class one exempt. Pretty close, John. Uh, you you almost got all the way across the gold line. Let me see okay. if I can help you light, right. help you out. It, you're right. It depends on the indication. In other words, what it's being used for. So simply put, there are three different regulations that apply to dental lights, depending on exactly what they're being used for. If the indication is for daylight, in other words, dentist is using it just kind of like a flashlight, see inside yeah. your mouth. Or if the indication is for bleaching, in both of those cases, cases, it's a class one exempt device. However, if the indication of exactly the same dental light is for curing, now well, that, that makes dental sense. light yeah. becomes yeah. class two non-exempt and a 510k or perhaps a de novo would be required. Yeah. So once again, John, the light is a, can be exactly the same, just like the scalpel. As a matter of fact, the wavelength, the power, the intensity, all those parameters of the light can be exactly the same. But in some cases, if it's being used for daylight or simply for bleaching, it's class one exempt. If the if it's being used for um, uh, curing, it becomes class two non-exempt and a in a 510k or a de novo would be required. So those are just a few examples of class one exempt devices, John. All right, that that helps, and you know, for those keeping score at home, I think I got uh, about a fifty percent on the Mike Cruz <laughs> quiz. I'm not um, keeping score. <laughs> hopefully, there's a curve, uh, and uh, the, that I'm being graded against. All right, so now that we have a couple of examples of Class One exempt devices, uh, let's let's do the the same sort of exercise. Let's talk about some Class Two exempt devices, and and again, there the the most important part is the why behind it. Yeah, great question, John. So first of all, I've already given you a couple of examples of class two uh, exempt um, uh, in, in part of the, the class one exempt options, but here are a couple of more. A refrigerator. Uh, is a refrigerator a regulated medical device? Well, most people would think, well, gee, if I have a refrigerator in my kitchen, you know, storing food, that's obviously not a regulated medical device, and it would not be. But what about a refrigerator that's intended to store blood? Right. Is a blood refrigerator a regulated medical device? The answer to that question is yes. It's a class two. I'll give you the answer, John. You you see if you can come up with the explanation. All right. It's a class two exempt device. The question is, why is a blood refrigerator a class two exempt device, John? And while you're thinking about the answer, let me just remind our audience that the FDA website will always tell you the what. If, for example, if you're developing a blood refrigerator, you can easily go to FDA's website and it will tell you a blood refrigerator is class two exempt, but it will rarely ever tell you the why. Why is it class two exempt? See, this what's confusing to me, uh, and I'll, I'll sp uh, talk uh, through my thought process because um, it seems like like a refrigerator, like, you know, from, from for all intents and purposes, saying that it's a class uh, two exempt almost is saying that that blood refrigerator is more or less the same as the refrigerator that I have in my house. And and I'm, I know I'm, I'm taking a few liberties here, but but that refrigerator that I have in my house has a few controls. I mean, some of the more sophisticated ones, I can actually specify a certain temperature for that refrigerator. Like I think about my wine cooler, like I can, I've got buttons where I can set the, the exact temperature of that. Um, you know, I don't know the full range of the refrigerator, but uh, my, in thinking through that, I'm guessing that a refrigerator, as long as it has, you know, a, a certain upper and lower limit as far as the temperature range is concerned that that must be, have been demonstrated that the blood has stability at being stored at those temperatures and and doesn't have any sort of hemolysis or or adverse effect on the the properties of blood so that's my conclusion on that yeah i think largely your explanation is is pretty good john the answer 
factor why it's first of all why it's class two and not class one is because we need the special controls. Special controls because you've got temperature. Yeah, right. Exactly correct to maintain proper temperature range and so on of blood or drugs or whatever it is that you're you know plasma that you're storing in there. We would not have the opportunity to. Um, uh, to to um, to do that if it was a class one device, because class one devices are only general controls, not special or specific controls. So that explains why a blood refrigerator is class two, John, but it does not explain why it's exempt. So why is a blood refrigerator a class two exempt device? Do you want to guess about that one? Well, um Couple thoughts. Um, so the the special or specific controls. There's, I'm guessing there are special controls that are probably specific to blood refrigerators. There's probably a guidance or something of that nature, and within that guidance, it probably defines the upper and lower temperature limits, and uh, you know uh, the power requirements, and you know um, you know if there's a backup battery. There, there's probably all sorts of things that define the criteria for a blood refrigerator. Um, so I, I think, you know, the, that, and, um, not that blood refrigerators are ubiquitous, but it's a technology that, that has been around for, for decades now, and it has a proven track record of, of being, you know, having some stability, I guess, from, from a device performance perspective. That's my assumption. Okay, I think the tail end is part uh, is where you started to go into the to the correct uh, direction, John. I want to separate the issues here very, very distinctly because I think it's very important to understand the regulatory logic. The reason why it's a blood refrigerator is class two and not class one is because of the necessity of the special controls. We've talked about that already. The reason why it's exempt. Uh, think about it this way, John. If you looked up the product code for blood refrigerators and then you found you went to FDA's um, 510K database, you will find many 510Ks for blood refrigerators. However, I just told you that blood refrigerators are a class two exempt device. So how do we explain, how do we rationalize the fact that on one hand, it's a 510K exempt device, meaning no 510K is required. And on the other hand, when you go to the 510K database, there are a yeah. whole slew of 510Ks for, for uh, blood refrigerators. The logic is very simple, John, once you understand it. And as I said to some of my graduate students the other day, this is stuff that you cannot read in a book. You cannot read it on FDA's website. You have to kind of figure it out yourself. So this is the explanation. Those 510Ks for blood refrigerators were cleared in the past. But at some point in time, FDA downclassified blood refrigerators from class two non-exempt to class two exempt, meaning that today a 510K for a blood refrigerator is, is no longer applicable. And the reason why? For a couple of reasons, John. First of all, as you started to describe, it's well-established technology. Refrigerators have been around for a very long time. The standards are pretty well known and accepted and so on. We understand the risks and the benefits. The regulatory logic is exactly the same as what we use in the drug world. When a drug goes from prescription to over-the-counter, the regulatory logic is exactly the same. We've used it for a long time. It's got a well-established history of use. We understand the risks and benefits and you know, yada, yada, yada. So the regulatory logic here is exactly the same. The other reason why it's a exempt device job is more of a pragmatic one. Because in the world that we live in, where we do not have infinite resources and FDA does not have infinite resources. Given a choice between evaluating a 510k for a blood refrigerator versus evaluating a 510k for something else, it's just a better use of FDA's resources to put those resources into evaluating something. Yeah. So FDA is basically saying, and I think this is a good example, that a 510k is no longer necessary for a blood refrigerator for all the reasons that we just talked about. However, it still needs to be a class two device right. because of the special controls. That's the regulatory logic, John. Yep. Does that make sense? Do we have time so, for one more class two exempt, uh, exempt example? Well, I, I know we're getting a, uh, a little long uh, today, so we'll probably need to start working towards wrapping things up. But I would... Before we, uh, you know, talk about what key takeaways and, and and whatnot, I just want to, you know, stay on that refrigerator, blood refrigerator okay. example sure. for just one mo more moment. So, you know, I know there are some devices out there that might be considered blood refrigerators, but 
uh, maybe their power sources. And I, and I don't know the special controls in place for blood refrigerators, so I, this could be well defined within those. But you know, if I start to exceed or ex- expand my technology beyond those special controls, I hope this is uh, I'm, I'm, this is makes sense. It, but if I'm beyond those special controls that that are defined that allow it to be exempt, now I might be non-exempt. I might still have a blood refrigerator, but now my indication or my technology is maybe not as proven or maybe doesn't have that that track history as a, a more standard blood refrigerator. That is correct, John. If you come up with a new mechanism of action for a refrigerator to store blood, one that does not rely on I'm not an expert in refrigeration. I think they used to use Freon, but now they use other things. But anyway, if you come up with a totally different way, now you're exactly right, John. You're probably uh, non-exempt, but also because you've changed the mechanism of action, you're not looking at a 510K anymore. You're probably looking at a de novo. Yeah. Yeah. So I think those examples are are certainly helpful. Uh, I guess, you know. And that would be an opportunity. That last example, John, of a de novo for a refrigerator because of the new technology, that would be a wonderful opportunity to influence FDA to yeah. impose new special controls for the future when somebody wants to come out with a uh, device using your device as a predicate for their 510K, right. and you've just imposed this new special control in front of them. Absolutely. All right. So uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I mean, as I thought I would, I, I've learned a few things myself uh, during this conversation on exam. It's It's not... I think, but when you said, "Hey, let's talk about this," in my mind, I'm like, "Oh, this is a fairly innocuous, black and white topic." But you know, the devil is definitely in the details, and and it's there's you know, as with most things, there's certainly uh, shades of gray within all of this conversation. So I learned a few things. But what do you? What else do you think is important uh, as we wrap up the conversation on 510k exempt? Well. A couple of things, John, and again, thank you to you and your audience for having this important discussion. And thank you on a personal note for being willing to play along a little bit here. I didn't mean to to put you on this. It's all spot. good. So, so thank you for for chiming in. First of all, John, I hope that you would appreciate. We've been doing these podcasts now for many years. That in the regulatory world, at least to me anyway, there is absolutely nothing that's black and white. There's an <laughs> infinite number of shades of gray, and it's in those shades of gray that gives us the opportunity to maneuver to manipulate, if you will, uh, to do what it is that we think is right. So in terms of uh, classification and class one and class two exempt versus non-exempt, I I hope we did a good job of explaining some of the pragmatic differences, like, for example, general controls versus special special or specific controls um, and exactly what exempt means. Exempt means that you still have a regulated medical device, but you do not have a formal review of the device by the agency. In other words, no 510K, de novo, no PMA, nothing like that. You still have to have a quality management system. You still have to have design controls. You still have to have FDA registration, all that kind of stuff. But most importantly, John, what I've tried to just to emphasize not just in today's conversation but in all of our discussions we've done over the years is the regulatory logic it's not enough if somebody says you know one plus one equals two you might say gee that's interesting but what have you learned absolutely nothing because what happens tomorrow when somebody asks you what is two plus three or five plus seven and so on and so on so what i'm trying to emphasize here is not just the answer yeah the answer is important but what is much much more important than the answer is the logic that you that absolutely that answer. so those are a few of the takeaways john um what would you add to the list for for our audience no I, I like that i mean hopefully folks picked up on um the conversation mike and i had today you know we we thought out loud a little bit you know and explained some of the, the steps that one might go through to determine you know is it this or that and you know what does exempt mean and why do special controls apply here and not there and that sort of thing so you know, just just go through going through that thought process. Um, I think is is a good thing to do. And I think the other key takeaway is, you know, not to sound flip, but whether or not your device is exempt, you know, who cares, right? I mean, of course you care, but but at the same time you shouldn't care because it shouldn't be the excuse for cutting corners and it's not a, a you know a, a freebie. You know, you, you don't you don't. You don't get the, to to avoid the what's important about being a medical device company 
just because you got an exemption status uh, for your product. It's still important that you understand and apply general controls for each and every and all medical devices and special controls apply when it's specific to your medical device. So, you know, uh, that's not just just understand that it's is this is i think key and, and important to making safe and effective medical devices would not agree more very well said john thank you all right well mike uh i always enjoy these opportunities to to connect and and talk about interesting topics i found this topic personally to be very interesting uh, as i i think i said i don't remember what i said at the beginning of the recording but when you and i were chatting Seems like a fairly innocuous topic, but clearly there's there's uh, those infinite shades of gray that that we need to deal with. So I'm glad we did talk about that. And you know me, John. I have this. <laughs> there's always a twist. I know. That seems to be simple and and straightforward, and give it a little twist in order to well, kind of get those mental juices flowing a little. No, bit. it's it's very thought provoking, and you know I, I'm of an age now that uh, who wants to sit around and talk about boring stuff you know let's 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 get our brains working that's what they're there for right who would have thought that talking about such benign products like scalpels like wheelchairs <laughs> like refrigerators could lead to such an interesting i know regulatory right. discussion who would have thought i know <laughs> well thanks for bringing it to my attention and folks uh thank you for listening to the global medical device podcast uh certainly if you have questions that are regulatory oriented you're curious about exemptions and class one and class two regulatory strategy and whatnot. Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences as a guy you should reach out to. Uh, so connect with him. I know he uh, is more than willing to to uh, listen to your question and do his best to try to lead you in the right direction. Uh, and of course, uh, if there's anything I can do to help you as well, feel free to connect with me. And thank you for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. The medical device industry is nothing if not unique. So we built software that works the same way. Greenlight Guru is the only quality management system designed by medical device professionals to meet the unique needs of medical device companies. Our cloud-based platform allows companies to bring safer products to market up to three times faster while reducing risk and lowering cost. Visit www.greenlight.guru today to request your free personalized demo of Greenlight Guru.